You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So if you have a Bible with me, uh, turn to Exodus two, uh, Exodus chapter two, Exodus chapter two, and we are um, we're doing a big swath of scripture today. Unlike Philippians or Mark, which we did like half a verse sometimes, we're doing two and a half chapters today. Uh, just the nature of the story and how God is unfolding it in his word. Sometimes it's going to be shorter than others. Sometimes it's multiple chapters a Sunday. Uh, as of right now, we are going to endeavor to read this scripture. And it's a lot of it. So I'm actually going to invite up someone that's far better at the English language than I am. Uh, Anna McDonald, come on up. Shh, let's give her some love. <laughs> she is going to read Exodus 2 through chapter 4, verse 4. 17, right? Two and a half chapters. Going to be about eight minutes long. So settle in, like drink some coffee, settle in, whatever, whatever you say, settle in. We're going to have it on PowerPoint, but it's always nicer, I think. Have a Bible open or a phone, that's fine, and read it alongside us. It's the new uh, international version, NIV. Anna, lead us through the scriptures. Oh, yep, totally have a mic. Are you ready? We're ready. Okay. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her, father, or sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Rule asked his, his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. 
Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I, have, that I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward his people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. 
Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gives human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Thank you. Thank you. Hello? This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you so much for this section of scripture that you have us in this morning. And God, we want all that you have for us. God, thank you that you've preserved your word and this story and its, its history. And it's so that we can learn from it. We can see your character and your goodness and how you use your people and redeem your people. And we ask God that you would um, have your way with us, that we would be able to look at this story in this other context and this other culture uh, thousands of years ago, but that you would speak to us personally here and now how this applies to our own lives. We ask that you'd be exalted in our time together and in your word. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a lot going on here, but if you remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, the children of Israel, the Hebrews that are, that are enslaved to Pharaoh at this time, have been there for 400 long, hard, harsh years. And it's been centuries now of, of God's people, of the Israelites being imprisoned in harsh labor. And not only has their life been met with harsh treatment, but generations upon generations has has gone on. And the children of Israel are not seeing the Abrahamic covenant come to pass. We talked about that last week. But God spoke to Abraham in the book of Genesis that through him, a great nation would come and that he would redeem humanity through it. And for 400 years, God's people, this little family has now grown 
Nothing ha- nothing's happened. If anything, they're, they're oppressed. They're tortured. I mean, this is, this is a horrible place, and they're not seeing it come to pass. But some in those days of Moses may have thought, you know, that God maybe have, has neglected them. Maybe he, maybe he forgot of this covenant. Maybe it wasn't real. Maybe we heard history wrong. Right? 400 years goes on. Nothing happens. Some begin to doubt, but nevertheless, God was at work during that time, and he was preserving, and he was multiplying this nation, right? Um, The children of Israel came with 70 people, and now there's upwards of 2 million Israelites over 400 years. This nation, even though they're oppressed, these people group inside inside of Egypt, even though they're oppressed, they are and have been flourishing and multiplying by number at least. And all too soon in the book of Exodus, we will see that God is on the move. This is, again, the greatest redemptive story in all of of the Old Testament coming to pass right now. And in the last two weeks, what we've been trying to do, what I've been attempting to do, is really to set a framework or some context to what's going to be starting to happen today. So if you've not been with us, please go back and listen to those podcasts to kind of catch up to the climate of what's happening. But in chapter 2, which Anna so wonderfully just read, we meet the main character of this story, and it's Moses. Right? This is the man that God would use to rescue his people from Egypt. And probably, if you're like me at all, like 20 years ago, you saw Prince of Egypt, so this is flooding your hand. When you think Moses, when you think Egypt, maybe it's the Ten Commandments long ago, but at least my generation is probably Prince of Egypt. I actually just watched it again last night. And you're like, yeah, yeah, flooded back, good memories. Um, again, they take a lot of, you know, artistic, you know, freedoms that's not exactly in here, but at the same time, this is the story we're talking about. It's Moses, it's the burning bush, it's the Red Sea. This is all, this is all the story of Exodus. But in a nutshell, what's happened is that Moses was born into a time, which we talked about last week, of governmental decreed genocide to all newborn Hebrew boys. Any Hebrew boy that was born at the time of Moses was killed. This was a decree from Pharaoh. It was a nationwide decree, and a whole people group, the Hebrews, were being persecuted from it. But what happens, right, is that Moses' mom hides out Moses for three months. Kids getting older, crying too much, can't hide him anymore, whatever the situation is. But no longer can this mom keep him from the Egyptians. And so what she does, pretty crazy, but she puts him in a basket and sends him down the Nile. This is, I mean, if you see Prince of Egypt again, you're like, it's unbelievable what happens to this basket down the Nile. You watched it last night. Crocodiles and fishermen, it's like... There's a, lot more to the, there's a lot more in the movie. But all that said, it's like a last-ditch effort. And Moses' mom is like, either there's like certain death for my son, or there's perhaps a possibility. And what happens? They send him down the river, and in God's sovereignty, he allowed, he orchestrated all this. We'll talk about that in a second. But who finds him? Doesn't die. He lives miraculously, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and more or less adopts him. And think about it. He's the only Hebrew child that got a pass at the time. Everyone else died. 
He's the only Hebrew at that age, at the moment that lived. And it's because Pharaoh's daughter found him, adopted him as his own, and he grows up in Egyptian royalty, but he's still a Hebrew. But he, but he got a free pass. But he's grown up in Pharaoh's home as Egyptian royalty. This is the story we just read. Right, and fast forward, Moses has grown. I don't know how old he is about, but he's, he's grown. And what happens is, is he actually firsthand sees the oppression of his own people. Right, we just read this. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and Moses is like overwhelmed with compassion. He sees the injustice, and he actually kills the Egyptian, and he tries to hide the evidence. It's not a good situation, but he does it. And it doesn't last long. His secret's out. He goes back, and people are talking about it. And Pharaoh tries to kill Moses. Even though Moses is who he was, this can't happen. He tries to kill him, and Moses leaves it all. I mean, this is royalty. I mean, he's like the prince of Egypt. But he leaves it all, and he goes out to the wilderness into exile as a fugitive. He's done. He has to run for, for, for fear of his life. Moses, the story goes, he marries and he has a kid. And for 40 years, he lives in the desert of Midian as a shepherd. Like, total dramatic twist in his life. Like, think about it. In royalty, in the most wealthy, prominent empire that's ever existed. And in a moment... He's done with it, goes into the wilderness, starts over, and what we hear is that during that time in the wilderness, as a shepherd with his new life and his new family, that Pharaoh dies. The Pharaoh that um, once was family to him, but then once wanted to kill him, dies, and chapter two ends. Chapter two ends with us being reminded of the plight of God's people still in Israel. Moses is safe outside of Egypt in the wilderness, but what we're reminded of is God's heart, God's compassion and concern for the situation in Israel with his people. And what happens is the story picks up in chapter three with Moses going out as a shepherd into the wilderness, deep into the wilderness, to a mountain called Mount Horeb, which later would be known as Mount Sinai. We'll learn all about that. Uh, later in Exodus. But the story takes an interesting twist. Could have done a lot of different things, but what happens is, as we just read, is that God meets Moses in the form of a burning bush. This is weird and really cool all at the same time, right? Because Moses' life is kind of fairly dull at this moment. Just pretty monotonous, pretty similar. Like for 40 years, he's just trying not to die. He has a new life. He's still living in exile, still as a fugitive. But God meets Moses in the form of a burning bush. And what God does is he begins to share what he has in mind for his people that are in slavery under Pharaoh. And so we see that God has a plan. God has not only heard their cry, but he's going to do something about it. And God has a plan for the redemption of Israel, and he communicates it to Moses, right? We see this in chapter 3. We just read it, but I'll read it again. This is the Lord speaking from the burning bush to Moses. He says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way. Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, uh, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Okay, stop there. There's a big twist in this story. First, there's the burning bush. He hears the plan. Moses is like, this sounds good. Save the people. And he's like, you go do it. This is a big jump, God. This is a big jump here. But what happens is, is that God goes on in chapter 4 to describe this detailed plan on who he would use, how he would do it. We'll get into that a little bit later. But what we see is that God has a plan. He has a plan, and he executes that plan when it came to the redemption and rescue of the Israelites. He didn't do it haphazardly. He didn't just react. He had a plan. And he had a plan to free his people from the oppressor, which would be Pharaoh. But God also has a plan and has executed that plan when it comes to the redemption and rescue of the world. See, sin is our oppressor, is humanity's oppressor that's held us in bondage and in exile with God. We've talked about this the last few weeks, that the story of the children of Israel in Egypt is analogous to our own story. That we too were once in bondage to an oppressor, sin that was keeping us far from God. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, sent a rescue plan, a redeemer to save us out of Egypt and bring, it, bring us into relationship with himself. We see this all over the New Testament, pointing back to the Exodus story. But just a few verses, Roman, Romans 3, 23 through 25. For everyone has sinned. We've fallen short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. 1 Corinthians, Paul would bring this up in a letter to the Corinthian church. He would also say, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's rescue plan for humanity. We see that he did it once in the Exodus, and we see that he did it again once and for all through his Son. And this is something that we need to understand about God. God is not living in a reactive way to the problems in this world. So many of us, we have to do that. Something bad happens, tragedy happens, conflict happens, the world is getting crazy. We react to it. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We're not sovereign. We're not in control. So we just have to react. And a lot of times, as the world gets darker and farther away from God, we feel like we're always just reacting trying to hold our ground with God's word and God's truth, and we're reacting. But God, God is not like us. God is not living reactive. 
if last week we got a glimpse of God's justice, which we talked all about God's justice last week. This week, we get a look into God's character and specifically God's sovereignty, God's control. And we see Exodus and we see Israel and we see his redemption plan and Moses and everything is calculated. Nothing is haphazardly done. God is sovereign. This is a part of God's character. And the thing about God's character is it doesn't change. When you say God is love, or God is just, or God is sovereign, or God is all-powerful or all-knowing, when you talk about the attributes of God, those are God's attributes, and they're not changing. Circumstance, time, people don't change God. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorites in his book, Attributes of God, talks about what it means that God is sovereign. What does that mean that God is, is sovereign over all things? It says this. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is supreme over all things, that there is no one above him, and he is absolute Lord over creation. It is to say that his lordship over creation means that there is nothing out of his control, nothing that God hasn't foreseen and planned. God is free to carry out his eternal purposes to their conclusions. God does not play by ear or doodle or follow whatever happens to him into his mind or let one idea suggest another. God works according to the plans which he purposed in Christ Jesus before Adam walked in the garden, before the sun, moon, and stars were made. God has lived all our tomorrows and carries time in his bosom. His, uh, is carry, he's carrying out his eternal purposes. He has everything under control, so much more than we could ever know or that we can acknowledge or believe. God has always and will always have a greater, better view of humanity always in mind. So many times our view is narrow and it's temporary, but his is always full and eternal. He knows everything. Nothing surprises him. And in this case, we see that this is coming to pass in the Exodus. God's got a plan. He knows what's going to happen. He knows how to redeem his people. And he's communicating this plan to Moses. But we've also seen this come to pass in our own lives. That God had a plan. And he sent his son. And he executed that plan to save the entire world. God's heart. This is God's heart for every person, in every time, in every tongue, tribe, and nation. God has a redemptive plan for humanity. And he's very specifically communicating that plan to a very specific people, to a specific man in the book of Exodus. And it's because he can do this because he's God. Right, look at the dialogue between, you know, Moses and, and himself. Moses asks, who are you? Who should I say that you are? Right, God's speaking and he's telling this plan to Moses about how he's going to free Israel and how he's going to bring them into the land of milk and honey. And Moses is like, okay, that's cool, but who are you? Who can I say that you are? I can't just go back to Pharaoh, which I'm wanted, I'm wanted in that nation, I'm a fugitive, and say, hey, I was walking my sheep, and a burning bush told me to, like, let my people go. 
He's like, he's asking a pretty good question. Like, who are you? Who can I say that you are? And what God does is he reveals himself to Moses by declaring his relationship to, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this would remind Moses that this is the God of the covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant that he made with Israel and that is still valid and important. See, this wasn't a new God meeting Moses, but it was the same God that dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This wasn't some new God, this some powerful being, some new person, but what God does in that moment, in that burning bush, is remind Moses of what he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the nation of Israel hundreds of years before. And God's name was, was more than a name when he said, I am, I'm the great I am. I am who I am. God's name was more than a name. It represented his entire character and his reputation. And Moses received, what Moses received from God was, was about his very being and his attributes. Right, Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Who's speaking to Moses? Who has this redemptive plan for the children of Israel? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have to understand how significant this is. No one's heard from God in this way for 400 years, and they've been waiting in what they think is an unfulfilled promise. And all of a sudden, God's back. He, wasn't, he never left, but it felt like that. In this definitive moment, he says, who, who, who are you? He says, I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God that's going to redeem you and make you a people after my own heart. It's a big deal in this moment. Burning bush is a big deal. The bush isn't as important as who's speaking from the bush. What's so significant is what Jesus did for a moment in the New Testament. In the book of John specifically, between chapters 8 and 13, four times Jesus himself declares that he is I am. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, this is the reason why they crucified him is because they didn't believe that he was God, but Jesus himself declared, I am. That is speaking to Exodus. Knowing the name of the God that we know in the burning bush, Jesus declares himself as that same God. So significant what Jesus did in, 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 in the book of John and the New Testament. Because this divine title that Jesus took upon himself was declaring that he himself was the voice from the burning bush. That he wasn't just a moral teacher. That he wasn't just a good guy. That he was God. And knowing the name of God, now that, now that Moses knew the name of God in this situation... 
He knew who God was and his true identity. He could go back to Egypt and say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And the rest of the Exodus story is the story of God living up to his name, proving that he truly is the eternal God of this covenant. There's a lot here. But I hope you're seeing the significance of what's happening. God has heard the cries of his people. He speaks in a very miraculous way through a burning bush. He declares who he is as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, Moses, you're the one that I'm going to carry out this plan with. You're the one that I'm going to do this. And once again, we have to understand that God is always in control. That he didn't just pick Moses because he's the only guy walking in that part of the wilderness that day. God is not haphazard who he uses for his purposes. And Moses, for example... Everything about Moses' life was controlled by the Lord. There was nothing haphazard. Think about it. Moses' life being spared in the Nile River. God. God allowed that. God spared him. God protected him. God placed him in Pharaoh's family. Even the wilderness season, that, those 40 years where he's like, what is my life and what's happening? And am I even doing anything in my life? I mean, I can only imagine what he was thinking. But God, in all these times in his life, was planning and working in him. Okay, I'm going to use one quote from Prince of Egypt because I watched it last night. Moses finally gets like, well, this Moses, he's grown up now. He, he gets reunited with his sister and brother in the story. And he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe that this happened, what they were saying. And his sister, like, cries out to you, cries out to him, excuse me, God saved you to be our deliverer. God saved you to be our deliverer. And what she's saying there is God is sovereign. He's always been in control. He's placed you where he's placed you, and you're supposed to be used to save all of us. And Moses, obviously, is like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. But my point is, is that everything that Moses went through was preparing him for this moment at the burning bush where God would call him to use him in this way. And what's so significant is that when, when this first encounter happens at the, at the burning bush, God doesn't say like, hey, you, or hey, come here, or Israelite man. He uses Moses' name. He says, Moses, Moses, twice in a row. Moses, Moses. God's first words to Moses were calling him by name. And I think it's so significant because it shows even more that Moses, even though he was in an obscure, you know, forgotten shepherd on the backside of the desert, God knew who he was, and Moses was important to God. And God would reveal himself to Moses more intimately than he ever had to any of the patriarchs. It's incredible how intimate this time was with the God of the universe in this little area in the wilderness with Moses. But despite all of this, when Moses heard the plan, even though he knew it was the God of his, of his, of his fathers, what did Moses do? He's like, mm, you got the wrong guy. If you notice, he brings up all these excuses about why he's not the guy. 
I could almost see Moses, you know, by the burning bush when he says, and you should go do this. And he's like, who, who are you talking about? Like, you don't mean me, because I have a speech impediment. I can't even speak well. This is what Moses is doing in chapter four. He's reluctantly telling God, I am not the guy. Yep, that's a good plan. You're God, no question about it. You wanna use me to do this? I'm out. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you ever felt like you, you sense that God wants you to do something, talk to someone, minister to your person you work with, Go love on your neighbor. Go tell your family member that just like wants nothing to do with church. You ever feel like God says, I want you to, I want you to tell them about me today. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but all the time I think, God, that's not me. N- not me today. No, 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 God. That's cool. It's cool that you love them. It's cool that you died on the cross from them. I'm not the one to communicate that to them. Anybody else like me? that you sense that God wants to use you in your environment where he's called you to, whether that's your family, your neighbors, your workplace, and you're like Moses going, no, not me. Here's the reasons why I can't. Because that's what Moses was doing. He was like, cool, right on, awesome, not me. I can't do it. I I don't have the words. I'm not good at this. I so many times have done this. This relates so much to me where God calls me or I feel like he's leading me into something and I'm like Moses being like, like it's almost like the most embarrassing thing you can do where you're like saying hi to someone. You, you see someone saying hi to you and then they realize there's someone behind you that they were saying hi to you and you do that. I, I feel like so many times like I'm like, oh yeah, God must have it wrong. Like he's actually speaking to someone else in my life. And it's not me because I'm not equipped or you know what, I just don't have the words to speak. I haven't been a Christian that long. Whatever it is, I hope that I'm speaking not only to myself here, that we can relate to this. But here's what we need to understand. That this Exodus story is one story of God redeeming one group of people, but God has a plan to see the whole world redeemed. And he's God and he's able to do so. But here's what I I, I need us to understand. Is that God, most of the time, if not almost all the time, chooses to redeem creation and carry out his eternal redemptive plans by using other human beings to do so. Sinful human beings, unequipped, untrained to carry out his saving purpose. If you read the Bible, it's filled with people that when you see who God used, you're like, I cannot believe that God would use that person. But what about this? But what about that? And most of the time, the people in the Bible are saying, hey, I'm not good for this. God, I I am not, this is, pick someone else. This is exactly what's happening here with Moses. My question to us this morning is, how is God calling us to be a part of his story in the world? All of us are equally important pieces to his redemptive story for humanity. It's not by accident that you are where you're at. What I mean by that, your coworkers or your clients or the people God wants to use you with in his redemptive plan, that's not a coincidence. Whether you like your job or not or your neighbors or your family, that is exactly where you're supposed to be right now. You name the environment. 
Like, I don't know everybody's situation or your job or your environment or where you live, but you name your environment right now. It's by the sovereignty of the great I am that you are there. And I cannot express how much he wants to use you there. His amazing plans for you. In his worldwide redemptive story, he wants to use you just as much as Moses. No question. And you may be hearing this, and you may be reluctant and hesitant like Moses. But I want to encourage you that the same God that was with Moses is with you. And in chapter 4, when God says to Moses, now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Receive that as God's promise for you also. Go now. I will help you speak and teach you what to say. Because isn't that maybe our number one excuse? I don't know how to do it. I don't know when the good time is. I don't know how to communicate your word and my testimony. And God says, now go, I will help you. God's divine sovereignty involves human activity. Like God does his work through the work of his people, accomplishing his will through the willing obedience of his faithful servants. What I want to do is encourage us that each of us is called to serve the God of the burning bush. It's the same God. He has the same heart for all of humanity. We, we see it played out in a really vivid way in the book of Exodus, but God's heart is that all humanity would be redeemed from sin back to himself. And the promise we have in the book of Hebrews is that God will equip us with everything good for doing his will. That's what it says. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, God will equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in you what is pleasing to him through Christ Jesus our Lord. So guys, as we end, as we go into a time of worship, I want you to take stock, good or bad, of where your life is right now and the people that God has placed in it. And know that his heart, God's heart, is to redeem rescue, save those people around you. And you have been placed in a unique position that maybe no one else on earth has access to those people. Even though you think, well, my job is insignificant, that person next to you is not. Oh, you know what? I just feel like I'm in the wilderness. Well, so is Moses. We can... We can have a list of things why we can escape being a part of it, but God wants us to be a part of it. That should be exciting. It should be humbling. It should be an honor that God says, not only do I love you, but I want to use you in my redemptive plan for all of humanity. So church, let's get involved. Let's step up. Let's listen. Let's, let's, let's go knowing that God will be the one that gives us the words to speak. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you that you don't look upon us and expect performance. You don't look upon us and expect us to have it all together before you use us. You use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We thank you, Lord, that even when it comes to your servant Moses, 
that it wasn't because he had it all together and he was good at speaking and he was educated and he was in the right place at the right time. He actually was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he wasn't equipped. But you love him and you love your people and you love the world. So you desire to use us so that you could get all the glory. And I pray for each of us this morning, I pray that you would show us, you would burden us with what burdens your heart. You would give us your heart for the people around us and you would use us to see your redemptive plan come to pass with our families, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, our clients. Wherever you've placed us, we wanna be a part of your redemptive story. Use us for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Church, I wanna encourage you now that uh, we have a time of worship to respond to God's word, to worship him for who he is and what he's done and raise our hands and stand up and get on our knees on the carpets because God is worthy because he's a God that's in control and he knows what he's doing and he knows what's best. We also have communion up here to the right or to the left and communion is a way to uh, at any time come up and take the bread and dip it in the juice and be reminded of Christ's death upon the cross. Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me as a, as a way to be thankful and remember what God's done for us. And if you need prayer for anything, there's men and women in the back wearing blue lanyards that would love to pray for you. And so feel free to worship God now and respond to him accordingly to how he's spoken. Amen? Amen.